Hello and welcome to the Wiseman Podcast, a new series on the legendary documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Sean Glynis, an occasional film writer living in Detroit, and uh, my other co-host is Arlen Golden, uh, who is also an occasional film writer and also filmmaker, film programmer, and works in the documentary space in Bay Air, in the Bay Area. How are you doing, Arlen? Hi, Sean. I'm doing good. Uh, excited to be embarking on this uh, foolhardy endeavor with you. Yeah, uh, it took it took a little bit to commit to it, but I'm I'm really happy that I did, and um, I. I think it's going to be exciting. Um, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna just do an episode on on each of Wiseman's films and going chronologically. Uh, as you could probably tell, since we're going to be discussing this time, uh, Titicut Follies, the nineteen sixty seven film uh, of his debut. But um, I think our general idea uh, with this podcast is to uh, obviously talk about the films, but hopefully have interesting guests along the way, um, f- whether that's filmmakers or documentary people or Wiseman fans in general, um, that type of thing. Um, and we have this episode, uh, the second half, half of this episode is uh, an interview with uh, Carolyn Anderson, who co-wrote with Tom Benson, basically the book on To Cut Follies, Documentary Dilemmas. Um, where we go into uh, a lot of the uh, legal details of this film, and she goes into a, a lot more detail, um, and it's a great, great talk. Um, but first, Arlo and I are going to discuss it, and just so you know, you can access Wiseman's films uh, through Canopy's library if you are lucky enough to have access to Canopy, otherwise you can find them for purchase on uh, zippera.com. Um, but yeah, um, I, I I think I just wanted to start by, by saying it. This film felt to me like, I, I remember knowing the title of this film. Like this, there was a, a sense of notorious, you know, even before I actually knew why, I was like, oh yeah, Titicut Follies. I should know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you know, um... I was going to ask you kind of before we got into this, and, and I think my answer to what you're saying will kind of lead into that, but, um, you know, how you sort of first learned of Frederick Weissman and, and came to the films of Weissman, because for me, um, it was sort of similar to what you're talking about, where Titty Cut Follies was this sort of unwatchable, forbidden car to find film you know and um i remember i was visiting a friend for his birthday in boulder colorado um and he was like oh you got to check out um video station you know it's this giant uh video store they have everything you know and i'm like well if they have any everything you know that well we'll see you know we'll see if they have titty cut follies and sure enough, they did. And I, I rented Titty Cut Follies and High School and, and watched it uh, with my unsuspecting friends that birthday weekend. And um, yeah, life was never the same. Um, uh, when, how long ago was that? Uh, that? That was probably a decade ago. A little more than that, maybe. Okay. 
Um, and um, uh, towards the end of my college career, and that was li- or start of post college life, living in Chicago. And then I found that um, another video store, uh, unfortunately recently defunct, um, Odd Obsession Films, had Weissman's films uh, there as well. Uh, until they didn't, I was renting them regularly, and then all of a sudden I got there, and I was like, "Hey, where'd all the Weissman stuff go?" And they're like, "They they got in touch with us and told us to pull them all." Um, oh wow! Yeah, okay. yeah. So so further, you know, kind of lends um, into this idea of of the sort of mystique and <laughs> and rarity, right, yeah. of, of Weissman's work. Um, but yeah, it was so so. You know, you you were saying you had this idea of Titty Cut Follies. You'd heard of the film. Yeah, I think you. Yeah, so basically, you're you've had a longer relationship with him, like, um, and I wonder because I, I didn't start watching his movies until like the past five years, probably like three or four to be realistic, and um, and I think. Yeah, I think Monrovio, I, like when that came out, I was like, okay, I should start doing, I, I should start watching these. Um, and um, I wonder if, I, I had like a documentary class in college and that's probably where like the name like, you know, came through, um, just kind of like studying all of those, like those benchmarks, you know, Nanook and and sales the drew associate stuff and give me shelter like you just kind of like get all of these names um and i'm sure that that was part of the curriculum not the actual film but uh just wiseman um himself um but yeah i think um i this was definitely one of the first ones i watched and uh this so revisiting it this time um was the first time in in a little bit um which was interesting because i think the first time i saw titica follies i didn't really have much of a um knowledge base of what his work was like and now you know i've seen like a pretty large chunk of them and so it is interesting to go back and see uh where he started from visually especially yeah i mean it i I don't know if it's often the case but i mean for me you know this this was yeah the first of his films I, I watched and it was his first film. So it, it, uh, sort of seemed natural, but it, it is interesting having seen so many more Weissman works since then. Um, you, you know, later on we talked to Carolyn about, you know, the, the idea that Weissman emerged on the scene fully formed, you know, there's, um, really, um, a sense that, that, you know, this is his vision, and it's going to be his vision for the next uh, five plus decades, essentially. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, um, and again, we talk about this more in our interview, but just the visual uh, look here is a bit more um, raucous. Yeah. Like there isn't like a cemented idea. I mean, it's, it looks great, um, but. Um, often but you know there are these zooms that happen that just would never happen in in uh the rest of his like a, a close-up zoom on a, on a mouth or whatever um we should say that this film is about the uh bridgewater uh um prison um outside of boston um that he got access to and 
but and again uh as we talked about this was like a movie that Wiseman um you know he knew about this institution and had thought through visits that this was a place that he wanted to go and make a film which is again not the case as he goes along which was abstaining from really doing any research as he as he says he likes to say like the the film is his research um so uh yeah i don't know the, it, it, it's interesting um to like i said to go back at it but i think um a lot of it's all there like you know I think this is granular stuff um, that you can pick out of what Titicut Follies is and what the rest of his career is. Like, you know, the basics are there. Yeah, I think, you know, um, yeah, good good for us to, to give people some context. You know, so, so this film um, was Weissman's first. It came out in 67, uh, as Sean was saying, about um, Bridgewater Correctional Facility, kind of half mental institution half prison um but uh just sort of does the weissman thing there of, of just plopping you right in the middle of it um i think you know there there are some interesting um deviations from you know the the later or more long-term weissman aesthetic and you know some of that can probably be credited to um director of photography john marshall right who um got some credit as mm-hmm. co-director this was the only film he he worked on with weissman um i think he was more of um uh like a ethnographic kind of filmmaker i think he did a lot of work with like tribes in africa for instance um but mm-hmm. you know it it's curious to think about what he was bringing to the table for Weissman, who's, you know, this is his first film. Uh, he, he had produced The Cool World with Shirley Clark, which we might talk about some. But, um, you know, the the intense focus on faces, right? You know, how was that at Weissman's direction? Was that Marshall's idea? But what whoever originated it, Weissman's kept it, you know, and that that's a, a, a signature yeah. theme throughout all of his films or signature aesthetic really is, is this intense framing mm-hmm. of people's faces and individuals' faces within these um, sort of um, impersonal institutions to really highlight that, you know, as uh, monolithic and somewhat incomprehensible as they might be, you know, they're all just made up of people. Um, one thing I think that's really striking in Titty Cut Follies that I don't think one would expect in really uh, any of his other films that, that I could think of off the top of my head um, is the sort of match cut uh montage right right, with um the guy getting forced the tube tube force feed uh through his nose and then later on um dying and being prepared um you know that's that's really as close to a direct address you know i think as weissman's ever come yeah and he's talked a lot about it sounds like how much he regrets doing or not regret but just has learned from yeah. that like like in a lot of ways like he seems like a 
I mean, you could say fully formed, but another way is just like sort of an ossified, very stubborn man, like who knew what he wanted. Like, um, like he was just a very bright person coming into the game, like, and had, you know, these ideas of, um, what he wanted documentaries to look like and what, what he didn't want them to look like. Um, I, I remember, I remember hearing a, uh, an interview with him where they were asking him like sort of where he was getting his style ideas from or what kind of like influences. And he mentioned um, this documentary Mooney versus Fowl. Have you heard, heard of this? No, no. Uh, say, say the name again. Mooney versus Fowl. It's M-O-O-N-E-Y uh, versus F-O-W-L-E. Yeah, okay. And um, I think it's part of part of a series, but it, I, I believe it's also part of the Drew Associates program. Okay. Um, and that was like one of the one of the ones that he kind of. I mean, like it's extremely rare. I couldn't yeah. find it. Um, but he said somebody gave him like a sixteen millimeter print of it or whatever, and he liked it. But even that. Like, you know, those, those, you know, the Maisels and Pennebaker, like they're following a lot of single figures right. and, um, uh, but this one, Mooney versus Fowl, I don't think does. And, but he said still there is like sort of like these music things that he just, um, he just didn't care for. Like, so it seemed like going into Titicut Follies, he just knew what he wanted document his, um, his movies to look like and really stays with that. And it is kind of shocking to see like just the use of montage, like uh, outside of that match cut, which is stark. Like watching it this time, I was like, Ooh, this, <laughs> this doesn't, this doesn't work. Like, frankly, it's just like, like he said, it's too didactic. And uh, it's just like, yeah, this is not, this is not the Wiseman uh, touch, but um, yeah, it, it, it does uh, feel maybe like a bit of a, of a rookie move, I guess, um, for, you know, like, like I think, um, you know, Weissman's always inviting the audience to, uh, imbue his films with meeting, you know, it's, it's a, a collaboration mm-hmm. sort of in that respect, you know, he, he's guiding you certain places, but, but you're really the one discerning what it all means. You know, he, he doesn't really offer, um, any, any sort of, you know, direct, um, sort of descriptions or, you know, uh, like the judge said, there's no narration, there's no subtitles to tell you or situate you. Um, um, and you know, Weissman, though it's certainly implied in most of the films, he's never out and out saying this is bad. This institution is bad. It's, it's, um, you know, a negative force on society. I think that's readily apparent in most of you know the works i think it's fair to call them generally critiques um but yeah that that match cut is just um you know (laughs) i guess it's a little crude but like you know he's being force-fed um and and so is the viewer in that one instance kind of being you know having this um uh uh, opinion i guess kind of shoved into Mm -hmm. their, their face and it, I mean, you know, aside from everything else, it's, it's very shocking, you know, and it's, that's something that Wiseman would carry through just sort of not, uh, right. I guess thinking you were talking about Monrovia, thinking of the, the dog tail scene, maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he, he mm-hmm. won't shy away from those things. Um, but I mean, you know, bringing up 
um, that film you mentioned, uh, Mooney vs. Fowl, and yeah, Drew and Associates, I think it's also important to sort of situate Titty Cut Follies into the context of, you know, what was happening with documentaries at that time. Um, you know, Drew and, and those guys, Pennebecker and Maisels and at all, you know, we're, we're setting the scene in America, certainly. And, um, it was the rise, right. Of the, the sync sound equipment and the portable camera mm-hmm. that, you know, was famously used in primary with that long tracking shot across, um, the hall following Kennedy, um, so making sort of what we now consider to be a documentary, you know, making that possible. But it was all totally new back then, you know, and I, I've, I was trying to look up a little earlier, you know, documentaries I've watched and enjoyed prior to that. And they're all some mix of I'm thinking of um, Seven Up, first film of the Up series or The People versus Paul Crump. Um, William Friedkin's early film they're all some sort of mixture of what we might come to think of as documentary and more of like a newsreel or television presentation you know um, they hadn't quite hit the formula yet but here in 67 in addition to Titty Cut Follies we have um, Shirley Clark's A Portrait of Jason um, we have Alan King's Warrendale, um, and, you know, just a couple years later, we would have the Maisel's, uh, Salesman, which I think really is one of, um, the first truly modern documentaries, um, mm-hmm. uh, in between the Queen, uh, the film about, um, the drag queens in 1968. So, you know, it, like, I guess, you know, a lot of stuff in society at that time it, it was there was rapid change and it was in this instance it was brought about by these technological advances and people were sort of figuring out what that meant for film and um documentary specifically kind of you know as it happened on the fly yeah it, it's interesting that you you were talking about sort of the ones that you liked or, or that you've watched before, prior to to get follies and sort of that feel uh, and it made me think about the cool world, Shirley Clark's the cool world that, uh, Wiseman produced. It was like his idea, um, to, or, you know, he wanted to get into film and he liked, uh, what he saw of Shirley Clark's film. I believe he saw the connection and liked it. And, um, uh, this was 63 that this film came out. Um, so a couple years after the connection and, um, it has a weird mixture of it's obviously scripted but there's a lot in that film that is just loose and it's sort of like you know it has a certain you know french new wave like shot on the street type of feeling in harlem like there's just a lot that is just like living in its atmosphere and um that it's not shocking to think that this was you know the first film that that wiseman was was a part of because it just does have sort of like a taking in its space uh, vibe to it yeah yeah all those kind of interstitials i guess you know or like like street mm-hmm. scenes you know just kind of quick cutting people's faces kids playing in the street you know like animals running around like cats and dogs you know like those are the moments that felt i guess you know kind of weissman-esque 
you know, where where you're like, oh, okay, I could kind of see what's going on here. Um, uh, I, I found myself thinking of, of um, On the Bowery um, seem, seem to be doing a similar sort of thing with um, non-actors and real locations. And um, it's, it's interesting now, I think when, you know, uh, kind of found footage stuff, people or, or the mockumentary you know the the documentary aesthetic is often co-opted in fiction films to imbue mm-hmm. some sort of sense of authenticity right or or reality um mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. it otherwise might not have in a standard sort of mode of narrative production um but you know that aesthetic wasn't really codified as such you know at this time so that's kind of what i mean when like people were feeling it out and just sort of letting you know what can i do with this mobile camera that i couldn't do when i was married to a tripod and you know had a hand crank or whatever Mm -hmm. um but you know i think out of that play you know i think the technology really led to what the aesthetic would come to be and and not necessarily the other way around. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's important to note that, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, I mean, you can't really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's hard to overstate for people who were there just how exciting it was to see something like this. Um, like just out of, you know, these things that as style is, is being codified. I mean, I think we kind of saw it with, um, to a, a, to a similar degree with digital filmmaking, like just seeing it, um, uh, sort of come into its own over like, you know, 10 years or so. Like I thought that was exciting and it's exciting to think back and, and think about like, oh yeah, I saw this, uh, in the cinema when it came out and it was, it was cool just to see a new type of image being articulated. Um, and I'm sure it felt the same way to see this, um, to, to see something like to cut follies. Um, but uh, so I kind of wanted to, to zoom out a little bit and just kind of like, uh, I guess if you're not too familiar with Wiseman's work or just for the sake of, you know, dotting our I's and crossing our T's, um, it's usually his, his career project is, is usually shorthanded to, uh, looking at American institutions. Um, uh, obviously he goes outside of America, uh, here and there, but, um, mostly stays in America and, and has done, I think about half of the States in the, uh, in the country, um, by now. And, um, but specifically he kind of is, uh, looking at power relationships between people and these American institutions that we live in or that regulate our lives. Um, and his films are also often talked about as sort of like, like I said, one large project, um, they're all in sync with what came before it. You know, the new Wiseman film is not, oh, I wonder what he's going to do this time. It Like, you know what it is. And that's beautiful because it just adds, like, another layer. Um, you know, it's another piece of the same project. And it, it, it's, um, it, it's incredible how much it, it stays away from being redundant and just really is adding layer on layer. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, he's, he's, 
maintained this this like I said this attitude throughout his his career, which which really says something. Yeah, I mean, um, it's in- about how sure. It's interesting to think about. You know, I think Weissman was what thirty seven when Titty Cut Follies came out. You know, being a first time filmmaker. Yeah. Um, at that age, um, I'm sure you have uh maybe less so in in filmmaking but you know by that point your your sort of opinions and worldview are are relatively set right and you know weissman was a professor um um involved in this work and so i'm sure he knew or had a pretty good sense of what he wanted to accomplish as a filmmaker um that you know was pro he probably felt was um he was unable to do as an academic, you know, unable to reveal the sort of truths um, that he felt like he was trying to convey um, in any other sense than, than as a filmmaker. And then it just so happened that, um, you know, the camera and the, the mics were, were becoming affordable and available to him in order to do that during this time. Um, so, so are you saying it's a, are you saying it's a, um, this is a a, a a man's film and not a boy's film. Uh, sure, let's say that <laughs> a man's first film. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it, well, it's it's funny that you say uh, sort of revealing truth because I think there is something distinct about to the cut follies and probably high school to a lesser degree, maybe, but they play so much like exposés now. Yeah. Um, but he's talked he's talked a lot about like sort of. I mean, he knew. He, he started as a filmmaker very interested in social problems. He, he wasn't like, you know, under some idea that Bridgewater was like uh, doing good things. But um, he is mostly interested in, in seeing sort of the conflict of good work and bad work being done in tandem. Um, and uh, he, he also is not... Um, under the idea of going to make a film about this thing to change the world. And like, so, which I think is very healthy perspective of somebody who is not a young uh, man looking to, to set the world on fire, but kind of shows him more as like an artist than as some like social do-gooder. But, um, but what's when you, when you were, it reminded me of this quote uh, in an interview um, in the preface of an interview that I was reading um from film comment the the uh the writer was saying that he he doesn't reveal truth but he constructs um or he yeah he doesn't reveal he constructs meaning um which i think is interesting and obviously like i said it's a little tricky when you talk about tika follies because of of sort of the expose feeling of it um and but but what what's what's really important as we go along is to talk about the fact that to Wiseman's cinema is like central to it is his subjectivity, which you feel in To the Cut Follies still. Um, like very much you feel him and his perspective, but each film is him conveying his personal experience of, you know, spending time with whatever place he's at. And um, it's just an important distinction because it rejects this or maybe just avoids this this common notion surrounding documentary and documentary filmmaking that you know what you're seeing is representative of of, of its subject um he's he's interested in courting he's not interested in courting objectivity you know that's not what he's there for and um 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. There was this big New York Times article that came out after City Hall about him calling him like the the America's great novelist, novelist or something yeah. like that, and I, and which is you know a silly a silly headline. Um, this sort of like weird, you know, it's like when people call a film painterly, but um, uh, but but I was kind of like, oh yeah, maybe it's not that silly when you think about him as like this this. When you, when you think about him less as a as a documentary filmmaker and more as just somebody like he likes to call them reality fictions, but more as just somebody who is creating his own very particular subjective experience with all of these institutions. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting that like Weissman's films they they're sort of their own thing. I mean, they're clearly docs, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that. Yeah, but like. I don't know. They're so singular, and his um, vision is so strong and consistent that, like, a obviously you know when you're watching a Weissman movie, um, you know he he does as much as anyone, you know, bear that autoristic stamp. Um, but like, there's there's just something about. You know, he he's so like you're saying, he's so quick to disavow any claims of, you know, objective truth or being a fly on the wall. He's at every every opportunity he will remind people, you know, Mm -hmm. this is my construction. You know, this is my art. Like I put this together. It wasn't I didn't just point a camera, you know, and let it play out and let it be what it was. And um you know, you you can. There was um, something in an article uh, we were reading about um, another one of his films that uh, a sequence, as in reality, took an hour and a half uh, to play out, but in the film takes about ten minutes of runtime. Mm-hmm. But it it appears as if you know it's the complete. Um, you know, there, that there was nothing excised, right? Like, so, so he's making choices about what to leave out of this sequence and what to include and, um, what the purpose he's trying to achieve and what he's trying to convey. You know, if you, uh, cut together 10 minutes from that hour 20 that was left off, you know, you might have a completely different sequence with completely different implications and, you know, a a different uh, message impressed upon the viewer. So, um, he, yeah, he, his films are certainly documentaries, but I, you know, there's something about them that's just like, I don't know what it is. They don't hold your hand certainly. And they don't, they don't do anything really to invite you in, I guess. They just sort of situate yeah. you, you know, and you're you're mm-hmm. kind of in the middle of it, and you're. It's almost as if you're just kind of looking around, like a, you know, uh, a, what's the like Jimmy Stewart, right? Like you're just like watching events <laughs> unfold, and they can't see you, but you're just there. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is, well, I I think a lot of that is the rhythm that he has, you know, continually gotten so good at just creating this 
amazing uh, rhythm of editing where you're just kind of enjoying the flow of, of what you're watching um, and knowing where to pick out stuff. But I think I wonder how much of, of what you're talking about comes from the fact that he doesn't research these things and kind of goes in and explores them himself and kind of, you know, he's like, hmm, I wonder, I sh yeah, I'll go to this meeting. Uh, that sounds interesting. And then sees if there is anything, yeah. you know, and that that sense is 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 truly imbued um through his films where you are just kind of like being invited into a place um but yeah i i guess we we should also note that um we don't have to go into detail because that is the that is a lot of what the second half of this episode is about um but titica follies was part of a uh lengthy uh litigation process where it was banned for 25 years um it had a very brief theatrical run and it was shown to certain audiences over the over the years but um uh this was a scandalous thing and i think it like they like to say it's the only like non pornographic <laughs> right. film censored or something yeah. like that um but uh and it revolved around a, a privacy case um right so there is a sense though that um you know, you're getting to, like part of the, even though it's extra textual, part of the the wonder of Tinica Follies is how he got access to this stuff, and you kind of feel that. We'll talk about this in Law and Order, I'm sure too. Yeah. But like, you kind of like, it, I mean, it's wild that that he's he was able to watch, or you know, film some of the things that happen in this um, in this film. Oh, completely. Uh, you know, yeah. that's it. it his access is, is something else. Yeah, and, and Carolyn and Thomas's book, um, they talk about, you know, how basically um, consent and, um, you know, ability to consent, you know, we're, we're talking about um, people diagnosed as mentally ill, was implied unless it wasn't, unless they were, he was explicitly told that, that no, you know, they don't have consent to film this so and the book also talks about how um you know the, the guy running uh bridgewater at the time he was um encouraging of this project you know he thought it was it would <laughs> show, somehow show the the benefit of the work that they're conducting there um you know uh pretty naively i would think I think he said, like, there is no film that could be made that would make Bridgewater look bad. <laughs> it's insane. Like it's insane when you watch the film that that would be the case. I mean, like, um, I think probably the most obvious example is, is um, uh, I guess, I don't know what to call it, this, the spick and span scene, um, where it's the one inmate uh, being led down the hallway by guards. He's going to get a shave and led back to his yeah. cell. What'd you say, Jeff? How's everyone gonna be tomorrow? Yeah. Right, right. I speak and span, right clean. What? You real clean, Jim? Yes, Jerry! Huh? What are you doing, Jim? Good morning, Jim. Good morning. How's everyone gonna be tomorrow? Right, best of mornings. Huh? What? What'd you say? I stood I right clean! Hold up, Jim. Uh, naked 
the whole time and the guards are just egging him on and berating him and and just harassing him really you know it, for for an institution purportedly uh, about you know uh, mental health and and therapy you know this is clearly doing this patient harm um so I, it, this guy um, apologies the name escapes me but you know he obviously he either wasn't you know boots on the ground in the day-to-day of activities there or his staff made a concerted effort to conceal you know or, or dress things up when he did come around um but he must have had no idea what the facility was actually like to allow weissman in like that <laughs> yeah yeah i think that there are a couple sort of central things like that figures um one is him that guy being led to uh this shave and back to his room and, and berated about the cleanliness of his room and um and the other one is a guy who i think shows up twice who is seems very like cognizant and arguing for the fact that he doesn't need to be yeah there. glad get you out of this place and you take a little bit some time and medication and then but that's what i'm taking see i mean now you give me the same story again we are going to help you it's just that may ask just why i need this help that i uh, that you are literally forcing on me i'm not forcing obviously no, i talk no, well no, i, I tell think you, well i am something. i am well and you're ruining may me I, just may i say something we're not enforcing you if you say i don't want to take no, no, no. I, I, I don't want to say, stay here. If, I am a prisoner. If you say, I not want to take the medication, we agree. We're not That's not the principle, doctor. Medication. That's not the principle. The principle is that I am here, obviously well and, uh, and healthy, and I am getting ruined. Yeah, and he is like, seems very coherent and uh, intelligent and says as much and is, is kind of like just very cleanly making the case that he that Bridgewater is detrimental to his health and it seems very uh, plausible. Um, and it, this kind of uh, ties into something I wanted to bring up. Um, I was reading this um, this article from the 80s in Cinema Journal. Um, so it being like an academic one uses this, uh, it talks about Titicut Follies, but but uses this uh, you know, Foucauldian framework to contextualize all of his body of work, at least up until uh 89 um but he groups uh wiseman's films into three different categories of um confinement and discipline which would definitely be to follies um assistance and in, in productive disciplines of school and then uh military region and work um or no sorry productive disciplines of school military and region and and work and the middle one being assistance but um the important thing uh about this uh, argument that, that he's trying to make or framework is um, that Wiseman cinema shows a society, American society that is trying to produce like docile and, and useful individuals. Um, of course, within each of these categories, we get to see, you know, the struggle against a negotiation of becoming that docile individual, which is exactly what this this uh, Vlad, did you say his name? Yeah. Is? yeah. Exactly what he's doing, you know, trying to negotiate against this power. Um, and I, I think that this is an important thing that we will keep in mind as we going forward, like to see how it, it, it shows um, or see how Wiseman's maybe attitude about these things 
come forth, but it is, I thought, useful to think of Titicut Follies as this um, this society or, the, or this societal institution trying to put its power over these people to kind of like behave in a certain way. Um, and that being sort of this overriding theme, this over, overriding arc uh, in Wiseman's filmography going forward is this production of docile and useful people um, to basically do what the state asked them to do. Right. And, and I think that something else in that Armstrong piece um, about that that was interesting is, is that the, the idea that sort of the buck stops here, you know, you either shape up and get go back to society or you live in Bridgewater for an indeterminate amount of time, you know, um, right. it's kind of the uh, thing like in um uh, with McMurphy and, and Cuckoo's Nest, right? You know, he, he wanted to get transferred out of prison to, you know, go to a mental hospital because he thought it would be cushier, uh, not realizing that sentencing is irrelevant because they let you go when they say you're fit to be let go. So, like, mm-hmm. um, the, but if you refuse to comply i guess or if you yeah like you're saying resist the the power that the institution is imposing um you know they're they have no incentive to do anything for you you know it it's Mm -hmm. they're 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 segregating you from the people who you know they have determined don't need to be there um but you do and you will until we say that you don't yeah and if you say that you know you don't uh yeah you you don't need that treatment then you just look yeah you know it's it's extremely infuriating and so you just look like you have emotional issues um as is happening with vlad um i think the uh, sort of bluntness of Titicut Follies, like, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great. I, I came to appreciate more of it seeing it the second time, like I said, kind of seeing his filmography more uh, in between. But um, I, I think the bluntness of this institution um, is not as interesting to me as some, as his filmography develops, um, because the answers are obvious, right? Like, I mean, that doesn't make them less useful or like, you know, a, a, a worse, um, exercise. Uh, this was like, you know, a very good thing to have been made. And, um, he also makes it, you know, he, he constructs meaning through it very, uh, well and artistically. Um, you know, they talk, uh, also in that book, like him and the superintendent, um, who didn't think that Bridgewater could look bad. They talk about making this poetic film. Um, and they both kind of have this idea of what that is. I think, I think Titicut Follies is, is a, a, a really good, uh, piece of, of artistry. Um, but I find myself now as a Wiseman fan at this point, being interested in sort of some of these, um, institutions that are more like where where it's grayer where it's like you know sometimes liberal institutions or institutions that people think are good where you're kind of seeing through the cracks of these things um i I, and uh i think 
even in high school, we get a little bit more of that. And and they get funnier as they go along. Like a lot yeah. of Tickup Follies, it's not very funny. <laughs> and Wiseman is a very funny filmmaker. Um, so uh, in that regard, this is um, this is kind of on its own. Yeah, maybe um, in this instance, you know, funny isn't the right word, but one of my favorite sequences in film is um, I think Borges is his name. You know, Bidididi, Bidididiga. Charles Berman from Bidididiga, Benjamin Kaplan, Bidididiga, 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 Volpe from Bidididiga, Bidididiga, Lieutenant Governor Wilkinson from Bidididiga, Bidididiga, Parole Board from Bidididiga, the Carmen from Bidididiga, Bidididiga, and all members on parole board. Bidididiga, 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 Bidididiga. I want all those men arrested. Bidiga immediately for Bidiga from 168 pounds now down to 96 a pound. Abenigi and all those known. Bidiga, the deputy Fuhrer and all those known John F. Powers. Bidiga, Volpe, Charles Gone. Bidiga, deputy Fuhrer and Fuhrer all out. Go back to Von Braun. Bidiga and go all over the world. Bidiga contribute to Nazi party. Bidiga. And tell Israel, Palestine, I remember the first time I saw that, just kind of mouth agape. Like, and uh, if you haven't seen it, this is just one guy standing in the middle of a room with a bunch of other guys milling about, just um, doing this long-winded, you know, proclamation of semi-related ideas all the while in between thoughts saying and like you know very vociferously um and yeah it's not funny but it's like it's irreverent i guess there's character you know? there's a lot of yeah, character yeah yeah and it's it's um definitely you know saying to the audience you know you're you're in this institution you know you're in a mental hospital right now and and i think it does that visually too there's um i think around that sequence there's really interesting camera work where he's sort of attempting to find the subject you know he'll he'll follow Mm -hmm. somebody kind of walking this way and then catch another face and then just like kind of follow them the other way and and you know you get a sense of what it's like to to shoot a documentary in in that sequence where it's like you're you're always feeling about um for what the subject's going to be and Weissman talks about how he you know prefers to the reason why he's the sound guy and not the camera guy is um he wants to have his eyes open so he could take in the whole scene and then direct Mm. his cameraman you know where to go either you know by just like pointing at something and getting his attention or he'll he'll guide him with the microphone you know and start uh um, recording something interesting and then the camera will follow but you you know um in terms of visually you know there's there's this chaotic element right this unstructured element it really seems like outside of a few sequences of you know direct interaction with um the doctors i guess um really just unstructured yard time you know and and it's also it's also interesting to think about the ways in which um the camera may or may not have sparked specific behavior 
you know, I think, and, and this is mm-hmm. something Weissman and, and any documentarian who's honest, you know, will, will talk about and, and recognize is that, you know, I guess uh, the, the Heisenberg principle, right. You know, like observation changes what you're observing. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, some of the, like the, that amazing shot there in the yard and there's that guy doing a handstand while the other guy's like playing the trumpet and it's like, you yeah. know, in a million years, you can write that and, <laughs> and like, like, but like maybe there was some jockeying, you know, people wanted to be in front of the camera or catch Weissman's attention in that way. Um, and right. and it's, it certainly serves the film, but, you know, you are left wondering like um, how much of this might be performance. And I think, I think, um that's not something you're always thinking in the film, but in these certain sequences, but it's something that's true throughout. I think most, uh, direct cinema documentaries, you know, is like, is, um, people are in the moment consciously attempting to present the best versions of themselves or the most entertaining or captivating or smart and intelligent versions of themselves. Well, I think that that's really that I think that's particularly interesting in Titica Follies because performance is so much a part of this film. Like yeah. I mean we have the structure of the of the film is these is the the review Titica Follies playing in like the 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 beginning, the middle and and the end. Um and obviously like where they are performing for other inmates and guards. And there is actually one guard that you don't know for a bit. Can can I just say this as many times as I've seen this movie, this was the first time. And it was due to reading all that we read that I realized that that was actually a guard and not just (laughs) like an inmate that they gave like dress up privileges to. Right. right. (laughs) Cause he's like, it's so wild. He's always all he just compulsively goes into a song and dance number whenever the camera's on him. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about like along with this idea of what these other people have to perform for people, like they're always being watched. Like um you know, not only by Wiseman, but by these guards that are always being asked to be do, doing something and, and to be performing a certain way. Um, it, it's it's an interesting thing to think about within this. But I know that Wiseman says has said that um, he, if he if he senses somebody performing, not necessarily at this point, but at this point right. in his career presently, um, that he stopped shooting. Um, and you definitely see as you go along that you're getting like, I mean nobody can know but you really do get the feeling that like people aren't performing that much for his camera but in Titica Follies it's kind of alarming how many people look into the camera Mm -hmm. and which also adds another level of like this consent and privacy thing where you're just like sort of being like made complicit in whatever uh you know whatever like uh line stepping this film is doing with with privacy um with these people looking right at you it's so it's so interesting to think about to all those privacy issues um in today's context where like cable channels will air like a 24-hour <laughs> block of like prison documentaries and it's just like you know the most heinous shit from like abusive guards and and like 
um, you know, sometimes a prisoner's face will be blurred out, but they just shoot. And I mean, there's no, there's no like expectation of like integrity in those, you know, it's all like, look how crazy prisons are. Um, but like, like just how much, um, I guess, uh, implied consent, um, or, you know, the, the lack of agency, um, by incarcerated people, um, uh, is played out today. I don't, I don't know that there would be, um, once you're in there today, you know, I don't think there would be necessarily the same controversies that there were in 67 about showing people what, what they filmed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, yeah, it's, it's interesting, like how little agency they were given by the actual facility and then the facility complaining about, I mean, this is all in, in Carolyn and Thomas's book, documentary dilemmas about, um, you know, uh, the political idea or reasons behind a lot of the legis- legis- or a lot of the litigation to basically buy Bridgewater to not look bad or by the Commonwealth to not reveal themselves as being bad. Um, but I mean, yeah, we don't have to, to get in a lot of that because Carolyn does that for us. But did you have anything else to add about um, Titica Follies before uh, we segue into that? I had a bunch of notes, but I don't know what I did with them. Um, I think. Oh, I know. OK, so um, do you have a sense at all that like I think Weissman's films generally are known amongst dockheads and you know cinephiles um um but this is the only film that i think could be argued has is somewhat of a crossover and i think part of it is due to the controversy around its release um but i feel like it comes up in discussions of like people who are into just kind of like edgy stuff or like, you know, like horror like Mondo thing. stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And like, like how interesting it is that, you know, this film removed from the context of Weissman's body of work as a whole, you know, sort of um, has that prurient appeal to it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. It, it's also, which was played into the marketing of, uh, you know, it's short run to get people yeah. to check it out. Um, but yeah, so I think it's probably the only like canon film of Wiseman's, right? Like it's really the only canonized one, I think, um, which, which makes me, I mean, I think it's really exciting to talk about Wiseman and to discover Wiseman is because so there's so much out there to be canonized that hasn't been. Um, and part of that is because of how he runs his distribution and whatnot. But, um, uh, but there isn't a lot of forged critical lines about what are the best Wiseman films. I have my own personal favorites. And I mean, I think, I think when you read, when you really read a ton, like you kind of go, okay, you get a through line. Okay. People really love welfare. Um, but like you, you develop your own, favorites and you and and within the last you know decade you know people really took to you know ex libris and and in jackson heights but but there's so much in between there you have decades in between that 
really are just like waiting for people to, to kind of like discover and talk about more and share more and, and, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, like I, I have, you know, no claims of like, um, a comprehensive knowledge of Weisman. I think, I think I've seen roughly half of his total output at this point. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm excited to go through these and think about them and discuss them and, you know, hopefully, uh, reach some level of scholarship by the time we get to city hall. But though, by the time we get to city hall, they're probably going to be two or three others at that point. Um, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, but yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I get the sense that a lot of people aren't that familiar with Wiseman, a lot of cinephiles even, and a lot of that has come about because of Canopy. I know my own certain, my own particular interest has upticked knowing that I could access a lot of them on, on Canopy. Yeah. So I hope that a lot of people do that. Yeah, I mean, it really was this, you know, uh, rare thing. And, and you know, it's interesting to talk about um his distribution strategies he's self-distributes through zipora and um that's my full-time work is is in um doc distribution and he um you know by keeping things scarce you actually give yourself the best opportunity to make a living (laughs) as an independent documentary filmmaker by by self-distributing you're not sharing any cuts you know, uh, Weissman was the benefactor of a number of uh, National Endowment of the Arts grants, um, as well as, you know, PBS broadcasts. But in terms of direct sales, um, it's really institutional to colleges and universities, at which point he's you're charging like $300, $400 per copy uh, because they come with the public yeah. performance rights uh, to do that. So, so by... That was that's also kind of the key to his longevity, um, which in turn also adds to his his mystique, right? Um, and right. and and even yeah. now, it's like you know, not every library offers Canopy, and it's kind of like if you you don't have a library with Canopy, you're a bit you know up the creek without a paddle if you're interested in Wiseman, um, you know. Good, go to your local college and uh, try and get them to acquire it for their library or something. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, he's such uh, for, he looms large in documentaries. You know, I think, I think there's a sense that like he could, his films are like a baseline and the amount of which your documentary deviates from Weissman uh, is almost, um, you know, some sort of spectrum of, of documentary, like, like there's so many genres within documentary and, and Weissman kind of feels like at the center of, you know, artistic presentation. Um, he would never say this, but ob- objectivity, um, I guess cinematic objectivity without, you know, imposing your subjectivity in the term mm. and, and cinematic means like uh, non-diegetic sound or narration or on-screen text or anything like that. Um, and without all of the marketing stuff that, that goes along with self-distributing, like totally. you don't have that, that uh, um, certain companies that give certain things a certain look or whatever, like it's just unvarnished in that sense. 
Yeah, I mean, um, it, 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 he's like pure, you know, like, in, for lack of a better word, it's like, yeah, unvarnished. It's like yeah. the there. It's so readily apparent that the, there's not a, a commercial incentive for these works, right? Like, right. Like you're you're not gonna make a million dollars making these kinds of films. I think I think he probably has by this point. But like, like, um, it's only by you know his ingenuity and, and distribution and his, his cleverness around controlling his work. But like, like these are are films that, and he claims not f- for the purpose of social change, right? And not for some abstract um, guise of like awareness, societal awareness. It's like. Um, it's truly artful construction of um of reality you know reality is the medium i think uh in the best documentaries you're painting with reality and and the canvas is the film um and i think he gets that and he may he may have been the first to get that really yeah i think he's easily like one of the most important american filmmakers yeah ever. oh no um, I, I i call him the the greatest living filmmaker you know full stop like yeah. without without pause yeah yeah it's it's a, so it's a weird thing that i think gets people excited too because it, it, it's it's this mystique around it where you go okay there's this huge body of work i haven't been exposed to it okay people are talking about it which is why i try to talk a lot about wiseman um because I hope that it also excites people to check it out or like, you know, pushes them to, and then they, you get there and you go, holy shit, like this is the real deal. Like this is, yeah. and there's so much of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, he, he's, he's, he's an incredible filmmaker. And luckily I, I think that we, we have a fun project ahead of us to, uh, to talk about all of them. Yeah. It's, uh, it's daunting. I don't know what we've gotten ourselves into, but yeah, I'm looking forward to whatever, whatever's next for us. Well, um, before we segue into our interview with uh, Carolyn Anderson, um, the co-author of Documentary Dilemmas, uh, who shares a lot about not only the case surrounding Titicut Follies, but a lot about just Wiseman's body of work, um, and you know both aesthetically and his various collaborations, um, you can reach us at wisemanpodcast.com at gmail.com oh we're doing uh, that you can ask oh, us any fun. questions <laughs> yeah uh you can you can reach us you can ask us questions you can say whatever you want um uh yeah bring it bring the help. heat uh, ask yeah uh if you're having trouble accessing any of the films you can ask us how to do that um that kind of thing um and yeah until then um enjoy the interview with carolyn anderson that's a good one cool thanks sean good talking so yeah can you just uh begin by talking generally about your research uh and during your academic career Sure, be glad to. Um, most of my career focused it on an analysis of 
film and television productions. Um, I spent a number of years working with Tom Benson uh, on Fred Wiseman's work. I had started that work on Titicut Follies as a graduate student. Uh, we published a book called Reality Fictions, uh, the films of Frederick Wiseman in 1989 that included a long chapter about Titicut Follies and then close in textual analyses from a rhetorical perspective of eight other films, uh, commented on interviews with um, his cinematographers, some of his funders, uh, et cetera. Uh, later after uh, that book was published, Documentary Dilemmas came out in 1991, which concentrates completely on Titica Follies. And you have read carefully, I can tell from your questions. Um, amazingly, I guess, after that, we still published two more essays on Wiseman's films, two different films uh, on two different articles. Um, over my career, I've had a variety of interests in different topics and published on a whole range of topics uh, from trends in biopics to um, themes of class mobility, upward mobility in Hollywood movies, uh, comparisons of depictions of uh, the overthrow of the Hawaiian nation in different genres, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my most recent publication was in October, uh, a year and a half ago, where um, I published a very long 75-page essay about the career of John Marshall for a uh, Swiss film journal that was doing a triple issue on ethnographic film. And one more thing, since I retired in 2004, I've been very slowly working on a book-length project on a century of American tourism to Rome, which gives me an excuse to go to Rome every year uh, <laughs> when there's no pandemic. So uh, that's it. Indeed. Uh, so what is your, your personal interest with uh, Frederick Wiseman's work and how did, how did that come about? Well, um, between 1969 and 1975, I was living in Honolulu and teaching at a local high school there. And it was a time of um, innovation in education. And so a colleague and I introduced film studies into the English curriculum. And our students started reading about this new uh, attitude toward documentary filmmaking uh, and a new form that was made possible through as you well know, uh, new sync sound equipment, lightweight cameras, high-speed black and white film, et cetera. Uh, first called Cinema Verite and then direct cinema. Um, uh, the groundbreaking film in 1960 primary uh, included the work of three really remarkable cinematographers, uh, Al Maisel's, Ricky Leacock and Dee uh, a and they went on to make their own films then during the 60s. Um, the uh, late 60s also saw the introduction of Fred Wiseman into direct cinema, taking a different slant and looking at American institutions. Uh, PBS started broadcasting his films in 1968 with high school. And so every year, like many Americans, uh, I watched PBS to see the new Wiseman documentary. Uh, first high school and then Law and Order, Hospital, etc. I was very uh, impressed by his films uh, and uh, fascinated by them uh, and their 
attention to social life and institutions and the kind of complexity that they showed uh, among people in their interactions. Um, I realized that they weren't Rorschach tests, that they weren't just ink blots, and that there had been some rhetorical uh, uh, structuring in the editing, but exactly how that was done was a mystery to me, and their openness uh, as far as reading uh, as a viewer, were, that was very appealing to me. Um, so that uh, was that first interest in the film. And then I moved to Massachusetts and started graduate school. In 1977, I was going to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and I saw a flyer advertising uh, that a Wiseman film was going to be shown at a nearby independent theater. Um, <laughs> I was eager to see it because I was interested in Wiseman's work and I was uh, baffled by the uh, flyer which indicated that the film was banned in Massachusetts and that only certain people were allowed to see it. Uh, legislators, judges, this is my note that I had on my, <laughs> covering my camera, legislators, judges, lawyers, sociologists, social workers, doctors, psychiatrists, students in these are related fields and organizations dealing with the social problems of custodial care and mental infirmity. Uh, I convinced myself that communication was related to sociology. Uh, so I went to the theater, sang, signed the affidavit and watched the film. Uh, I was very moved by it and also very curious about how this strange uh, circumstance of limited exhibition had happened. And so um, I uh, decided to uh, continue on that path. Uh, I was taking a, a graduate seminar in qualitative research methods at the time and had to come up with a semester project. So I thought, well, this would be a great semester project. At the end of the semester, uh, I wrote a paper, but I wasn't finished, I didn't think, with uh, finding out what I was curious about. So that then continued and into a dissertation later uh, for my PhD, uh, which I defended in 1984. So that's my Tidika story. You mentioned an affidavit you needed to sign. It sounded like from your book that the you know ramifications for misrepresenting yourself perhaps um, were not non-existent, um, but it was more of a formality in order to facilitate anyone seeing these screenings. Um, does that seem like an accurate characterization of sort of the parameters around which screenings of Titty Cop Ollies were allowed to be held at all? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Weissman's an attorney and he was, you know, very sensitive to the legal issues uh, surrounding this film. And of course, from the beginning, uh, wanted to get it freed. And so he was, uh, I think, very careful um, about how the film was exhibited. Uh, he started uh, exhibiting it through his distribution company's support of films in 1977. And uh, before that, I don't think the, um, there had been as much care in, in how things were handled. Uh, but uh, I mean, that, that was up, up to an audience member to decide if an audience member wanted to represent herself or himself. Uh, you know, that was not something Wiseman had any control about. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but um, 
the um, I assume there were people in the audience that didn't fit those those uh, groups. Yeah, I mean, I just thinking personally, I would happily sign that. I don't know that I would fall under any of those categories um, at the time. Um, but just in terms of all this research you had been embarking upon for your PhD in, in academia, um, can you just sort of detail for us how that then was developed into documentary dilemmas and, and your time specifically focusing on the legal case of exhibition for Titty Cut Follies? Okay, sure. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but, uh, you know, I was interested certainly in the, um, the legal cases that the film was involved in. And so during my research, I was sort of on a double track. On, in the one hand, on the one hand, I was trying to carefully construct a history of this particular film, which was the only American film that had restrictions on its exhibition for reasons other than obscenity or national security. And um, so the details of that film were important to me. Also, I realized the more uh, I thought about it, that these dilemmas, these conflicting rights are ones that are common in documentary filmmaking and run through uh, documentary filmmaking negotiations, although they don't usually end up in court. And certainly they don't end up in courts that make these decisions the way they did in the Wiseman case. Um, so my dissertation research, I don't know if you want me to, do you want me to go into some of the areas that I was looking at or? By all means, sure. Okay, okay. Well, um, I, you know, was tracking the state and national press. There was a great deal of press in the Boston area about the film and the controversy. Uh, I read thousands of pages of trial transcripts uh, following the, the legal uh, case uh, and reading the testimony. There was a lot of legal commentary that was written about the film uh, in legal, you know, legal journals and that sort of thing. I interviewed dozens of people from the cinematographer, John Marshall, to uh, the president of the Massachusetts Civil Liberties Union, to the guardian ad litem appointed by the court, etc. Um, I uh, kept track of um, exhibition records, which Wiseman had to file with the uh, Suffolk Superior Court and the Attorney General's office as part of the conditions of exhibition. I uh, tried to attend any Wiseman appearance that I could because he often was asked questions about Titicut Follies. And of course, I tried to see the film anytime I had a chance to. Um, I met Tom Benson in um, uh, the period where I was finishing up my dissertation. Uh, he's a, a very accomplished scholar who was on the faculty at Penn State. And he published a, a wonderful essay, I thought that I greatly admired on the rhetorical structure of high school. Uh, Tom was going to be continuing working on Wiseman's films. And so we decided to collaborate. We created a book proposal that we presented to Southern Illinois University Press which recommended that we do two books. One um, which would include a long chapter on Titica Follies and then uh, discussions of other Wiseman films and then a book exclusively on Titica Follies which was Documentary Dilemmas. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I worked on this, it's in, I mean, in a way, it's an embarrassing long, embarrassing long, the long time uh, that um, as the, uh, our, our, our book uh, documentary dilemmas came out in um, 1991. And during that time, um, the uh, Wiseman was in renegotiation legally around the film. Uh, we um, sent a copy uh, of our book of documentary dilemmas in which we uh, um, took the position of supporting unrestricted exhibition. Uh, we, we sent a copy of that to the judge who was involved in the case at that time. Uh, this is now early nineties. And um, he wrote us, uh, we, uh, I'm not making any claim that we influenced his decision, uh, <laughs> but he did write us, thanked us, said he'd read the book, um, that he found it very helpful. Um, so um, maybe I should backtrack a little bit because um, Wiseman had taken, uh, after 20 years of having these restrictions on his exhibition, um, he uh, had taken, I, I guess I didn't even talk about how the restrictions came about. Should I do that? <laughs> yeah, go for it. It, it. It's such a complicated story. Anyway, um, the uh, the state moved against Wiseman and um, in the wanted to stop the film from being shown, and um, in the case of Commonwealth versus Wiseman, the judge made the decision that um, and this was in 1968, a year after the film was released, that the film couldn't be shown to anyone. And the judge was so outraged by the film that he actually went beyond the petition and wanted um, all copies of the film seized and the outtakes destroyed. So this was the first decision that no, but in Massachusetts that no one could see the film. And then uh, of course, Wiseman appealed that decision and it went before the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts and the next year, in a unanimous decision, the five-person court uh, came up with a compromise. And that was that the film could be shown, but only to particular groups of people. And they were trying to balance Wiseman's First Amendment argument that he had a right to film in a public institution, to show what was going on in a public institution and the public had a right to know what their tax dollars were going for. And also privacy rights of the inmates, which had been, the state had accused him of violating. Uh, and so the SJC, the Supreme Judicial Court of the state came up with a compromise. And that was the, condition under which I saw the film, that the film was shown unaltered, but with um, being shown only to a restricted group of people. And also that Wiseman make uh, an addition to the film at the end, that improvements had been made at Bridgewater. Uh, if you've seen the, if you saw the film at that time, you saw that he, he had a title that he was forced to do this and then he did it. So it always, you know, got a laugh from the audience. Um, um, so that was the situation for 20 years. And then Wiseman asked for a reconsideration of the motion and Judge Meyer 
came up in 1989 with a third opinion. And that was that the film, his compromise was the opposite of the SJC. His compromise was anybody can see the film, but the film has to be altered. Faces have to be blurred of men who are competent um, and objected to the showing, incompetent or not located by the guardian ad litem. Um, Wiseman, of course, was not satisfied with that decision. His uh, counsel argued that it was not, uh, with film, it was not like television where you could block out the eyes of someone, that it would include uh, blurring the entire image. And they calculated that following those instructions, like 72.6% of the film would be blurred. And so the film would be completely unwatchable. And it was very expensive, I, like, yes. just doing yes. that, yeah. Yes, yes. So it was partly the expense, but of course the expense was not the major argument. The major mm -hmm. argument was that it would lose not only its artistic, and that's the first time the kind of artistic integrity argument entered, uh, but that it would not, uh, it would damage the artistic integrity of the film, but also the film's uh, emotional power in the sense of seeing the faces of, of the patients and inmates. Well, this seems a, a natural time then to ask, you know, um, the, having rewatched the film recently, you know, we can all watch and quote unquote enjoy Titty Cut Follies um, unobscured, no blurring involved. So um, following this uh, third decision, what has happened to allow uh, the exhibition of the film unaltered? You know, how I even before it was on Canopy, I bought the um, home use licensed DVD directly from Sabora. So, so what what transpired uh, following ninety one? Well, the what transpired before eighty nine was probably important too, and that was that Weissman's counsel argued that the law had changed and circumstances had changed. Uh, they argued that um, the First Amendment in that period was being granted uh, 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 more serious powers by the court. Uh, the judge actually thought that probably the privacy argument uh, was the one that was at gathering strength. But circumstances had changed in the sense that um, many of uh, the men in the film had died and the right to privacy dies in Massachusetts. So that was a, an important change. Uh, as far as the blurring goes, uh, there were two men who were, uh, there was a guardian ad litem uh, appointed by the court. And this person's, uh, Mitchell Scurria was his name, uh, his duty was to locate as many people as he could who were pictured in the film uh, that were inmates or patients and to interview them, make a determination if they were competent or not. And so the whole question of competency is one that surrounds this film as far as consent. Wiseman always argued that he assumed anyone, everyone was competent unless the staff told him otherwise and the staff no, never told him otherwise. So he uh, said that he assumed everyone was competent. But this guardian uh, tried to locate men. There were uh, 
uh, notices in newspapers, et cetera, uh, about this situation that was going on and if you knew of anyone that had been in the film, et cetera, to contact uh, the state. So he made a determination about competency and then the um, people who were de determined to be competent were asked if they had any objections to the film being shown to the general public. Uh, two men did have objections. Uh, that there were some uh, people who were not um, located. Uh, at this time, when you're asking about changes before the, the blurring, also very importantly, the state of Massachusetts no longer objected through its uh, legal uh, representations, uh, no longer objected to the film being shown. So that was a very important difference in that 20 year period. Um, with um, the, the, the case itself, you know, is called Commonwealth versus Wiseman. And so, you know, the, the case originally went to court because the state of Massachusetts was trying to block the film. Uh, by 1989, the state was no longer uh, taking that position. Was during that time was uh, was the film, even though it couldn't be accessed by many people, I think you said by the end of its theatrical run, it like 10,000 people or fewer had seen it. But uh, like you said, you were watching, you know, every year or whatever uh, on PBS, each of his films. Was there so, a sort of a, a, an exciting like aura around to Up Follies, this thing that couldn't really be accessed while he was like, while his reputation was building each year? Yes, I think so. I mean, uh, like you say, his reputation was building each year. People were writing about him, uh, discussing his films. And uh, as you have done, often people who write about his films because of their consistency in various ways, you know, see them uh, as a group. And so there was almost all, not always, but frequently mention of the fact that Chidika Follies could not be shown. And so there was a particular kind of interest around that, uh, you know, and again, because the circumstances were absolutely unique uh, in the United States uh, and uh, it, it became a, uh, you know, uh, notorious film in that sense. Um, when retrospective started uh, as early as 1972, which seems very early <laughs> for retrospectives to start, but actually there was one in London that early. Um, they, Titica Follies was not shown in, in retrospectives. And so again, there was always had to be some kind of comment about why it was not being shown. And um, there was you know, a lot of interest around that. Uh, situation. So you're similarly, I guess, on the same page, your book came out within a year of um, Barry Grant's Voyages of Discover. Um, was there something happening around the end of the 80s that that led to increased interest in his films as well? Well, I don't know so much of something happening. I think Barry Grant had been interested in Wiseman's films for quite a while. Uh, and certainly, you know, his reputation was growing, uh, not just in the United States, but worldwide during the 80s. Uh, the French were particular, Wiseman spends part of every year in France, he's fluent in French. His wife is French Canadian uh, background. Um, and uh, the French were especially enamored of his films and continue to be. Hmm. Uh, 
so that was part of it. These retrospectives were beginning, uh, especially in Western Europe, but also South Africa, all over the United States during the 80s. Uh, Wiseman was awarded a Guggenheim. And then I think very importantly, one of the MacArthur Genius Grants. And uh, so that was a special kind of um, indication that he was being taken seriously as a filmmaker and also as an artist uh, during that time. And then um, this is kind of its tail end of maybe the popularity of it. But for anybody who uh, was interested in auteur criticism, <laughs> Wiseman was the perfect uh, person <laughs> yeah. as far as the consistency, you know, of his work. And also in and somebody who edits his own work. Pardon me? So, and somebody who shoots and edits his own work, um, yes. like yeah. that particular touching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think that in um, Arlen's article or his interview, he uses the word Wiseman-esque, you know, the fact that his, uh, his style was so consistent that he's become an adjective uh, to describe other films. And I think that he would be repelled by the word brand uh, and find it very <laughs> vulgar, but, but there is a Wiseman brand. Yeah, I mean, you see it on like posters, you know, there's a certain um, style to Zipporah's brand. Yes, even. absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's very, it, and it's very stylish. Uh, it, it's done with, with great uh, visual flair and uh, uh, distinguished uh, graphics. And, and go, going back to that original question, um, what was the state of um, academic papers or research into Weissman available at the time you started your research. You know, it seems like you did a lot of um, interviews and delving into primary sources. You know, how, how much um, have critics and educators at that time already wrestled with Weissman's films? Well, certainly there was, you know, there had been some articles published. Uh, Dan Armstrong, who I never got, did publish a book, had done some work. Uh, Barry Grant had done some work on Wiseman. Bill Nichols had uh, discussed Wiseman's films uh, in some of his uh, uh, very influential publications about documentary film. Um, as far as uh, Chittacut Follies, it was more... Um, uh, because again, some critics had not seen the film. Uh, Titicate Follies was not discussed um, in the same sort of uh, kind of textual analysis way as the other films that were, you know, available in a different way were. Uh, so I, I certainly would not, you know, presume that I was um, the uh, instigator of interest in Wiseman's films. Um, Maybe I just uh, hung on with one film the longest. <laughs> so 25 years, I counted it up <laughs> from when I first uh, saw the film and started working on it until the uh, second edition of, of Reality Fictions, because we wrote a, uh, an essay uh, about the freeing of Titicate Follies, and then we have a condensed uh, version of that essay in the second edition of Reality Fictions, and that was 2002. So from uh, 1967 to 2002, uh, 
So you can see why I let it go now for 20 years. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I have to ask, you know, this is not the easiest film to live inside of, you know, and think about uh, critically and and turn over and rewatch again and again. Um, did you find that living in the world of um, Titty Cut Follies to be detrimental to, to your mental health or anything like that? Well, what was, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, because I wasn't doing a textual analysis of the film, it wasn't as necessary for me to look at it again and again and again as that I did some of his other work. Uh, the thing that did bother my mental health, though, was uh, how discouraged I was about the kinds of betrayals that went on in this story. Uh, and the sort of... Um, uh, self-promotion and self-defense and it was it was a very uh, despairing look at um, state government uh, in Massachusetts and uh, the ways that people um, tried to protect the way the state tried to protect itself uh, and disassociate itself from Wiseman and the project. Uh, tried to create a um, him as uh, a, if not irresponsible and deceitful Cambridge radical. Um, one of the things that I talk about some in the book that's very important, I think, in understanding this film, and uh, I think it speaks to its unique status, and that is the uh, for people your age, you know, I'm much older than you are. I'm, you know, as someone in my 80s, I, I remember 67 very clearly. And this was the time in the U.S. that uh, that the polarization is, was even greater than in uh, the election of 2020. Uh, so the, the country was really divided over Vietnam, over civil rights, over sexual politics. Uh, Boston was involved in a tremendously bitter struggle over busing students to public schools for purposes of integration. And so these ideological differences uh, among people um, seeped into the state legislature and the uh, state administration. There was a Republican governor and lieutenant governor the uh, what's called the great general court, which is the state legislature was predominantly democratic. And so during the, uh, uh, when the film was released, uh, the, the state tried to completely uh, protect itself and uh, move against Wiseman and um, various individuals, I, I certainly won't go into that now, but, but various individuals have showed their lack of courage. Uh, and uh, to me, that was the most discouraging part of it. Also, the way people would rush to judgment about the film and about the filmmaker without having seen the film, without really knowing anything much about it, uh, would see a, you know, I don't know, a cartoon in the newspaper about it. Uh, the three Boston newspapers had a tremendous amount of coverage on the film and the three papers with quite different tones uh, as far as supporting the state or supporting Wiseman. And so there were, you know, it was front page news during the legislative hearings. And um, 
the radio and television stations, there were cartoons, there were editorials, there were um, many, many letters to the editor. Uh, so lots of people got involved in ways that were sometimes admirable, but many, many times not, and uh, very discouraging. <laughs> It's interesting to hear you contextualize it that way because um, like, I, I really enjoyed that part of your book where you kind of go through that uh, discourse analysis and um, it is frustrating to, to see some of the responses. Um, and I guess reading it foolishly, I, I was kind of wondering how much of that was an inherent response to nonfiction filmmaking and not really thinking about also the time period that it was happening, which obviously very much matters. Yeah, I think that the time period does very much matter. But again, uh, the response to documentary filmmaking is a very important part of that. Usually these um, complaints and disappointments uh, are not public unless there's some big controversy. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't go on. And so there's always a constant tension between um, and that's you know what I call the conundrum of competing rights between the First Amendment of uh, artistic expression, but also even more so, or maybe not more so, but but uh, alongside that, the right to show uh, for right, the right for the public to know about what's going on in state-supported institutions uh, versus subjects' rights of privacy, and those rights have uh, expanded. Uh, not detract, they've not uh, uh, become less important. The Tidicate Follies decision in 1968 was the very first case in Massachusetts that was decided to honor a privacy claim. So this wasn't something that was routine. Uh, now in you know 2021, uh, there's a lot of discussion about privacy claims in uh, discussing documentary filmmaking. And it's something that uh, people take seriously legally, but also ethically, I think much more so now. Uh, did, um, do you have the sense that in the States putting forth this right to privacy defense, you know, was there really any sincerity behind that? Or do you feel that their efforts to make the film unseeable where it was largely self-serving? I think largely self-serving. Uh, but again, that's something, you know, that's unknowable ultimately, but that certainly was Wiseman's charge, that they were embarrassed, uh, that they wanted to uh, cover themselves uh, for mismanagement and uh, of an institution of mistreatment of the individuals, the inmates and patients who were in the institution, and uh, that they uh, were trying to disassociate themselves from the film. And then again, it became this political struggle where the Democrats were trying to blame the Republicans who had given permission. Uh, Elliot Richardson was Lieutenant Governor uh, at the time that uh, the film was made. He uh, had visited Bridgewater. He was appalled by the conditions. He committed himself publicly to reform. He was the person most involved in uh, the change uh, from a first denial of permission to um, uh, the superintendent of correction changing his mind about permission. Uh, and so, um, 
later he was attorney general of the state and no longer uh, uh, supported the project, Richardson, that is. Uh, but I think an important point is that even if the state was disingenuous, if it wanted to cover itself, protect itself, um, and also from liability of, of inmates and patients, potential liability, even if the state was disingenuous, that doesn't mean that there's no value in the privacy argument. And that it, it's uh, uh, I, just a personal example. Uh, my sister lives in Indiana, not Moravia, but uh, she lives in Indiana <laughs> and she's uh, a child psychologist. And uh, she knew I was interested in this film, had been working on it, et cetera. So she watched uh, when the, it was finally broadcast on PBS in 1993. Um, she, was, she used the word horrified by the film, not by the conditions so much in the prison or the uh, prison hospital, but by the invasion of privacy. And uh, she was not alone in that. I mean, all along in the history of the film, there have been people from uh, the ACLU, from the Massachusetts Civil Liberties Association, uh, especially clinicians and people who work with the mentally ill uh, have objected to the film on privacy grounds. So again, the fact that the argument might have been used in a disingenuous way doesn't mean that there's no value at all in that argument. Uh, we took the position in our book, however, that we felt the First Amendment argument was the stronger one and that the film should be shown unrestricted. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think it's important. Weisman was never willing to uh, allow any uh, credence to the part privacy argument, but that's the way litigation works. You know, when you get, when anything goes to court, you get pushed into either being the plaintiff or the defendant and positions rigidify. And so it's very, and that, that's part of how these things work, I think. I'm, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legal scholar even, but um, I, I think that's the way cases work, that as they continue, people get more and more um, uh, entrenched. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a reasonable thing to say, not being a lawyer myself either. Uh, um, the decision itself, though, uh, as delivered by Judge Callis, um, was pretty heavy handed and you might might even verging on vitriolic you know there's Absolutely. there's um discussion in the book that weissman was framing titty cut follies as something that was to be a, a poetic film you know and and we've talked a little bit about the concept of direct cinema um judge callis makes note that titty cut follies has no narration has no subtitles and that these in essence uh, decontextualize what we're seeing and don't uh, form an accurate representation of what might be going on at Bridgewater. You know, how much do you think the reaction at the time was due? You know, you mentioned primary. I think that was only maybe three years prior. Um, you know, the, the newness of the medium of the technology that allowed direct cinema practices to flourish. How, how much of that was responsible, just you know, people not having a frame of reference for what they were seeing and, and 
a rejection of of maybe even the aesthetic uh, qualities of the film as as um, something to be offended by. Yeah, I I think absolutely that uh, that. Kalis uh, was, I, I think, a, a very conservative man, and his idea of what an educational documentary should be uh, was based probably on the, the, you know, documentaries from the 50s, early 60s, uh, that had a narration that was so assured that was called the voice of God, <laughs> right? And uh, that frequently uh, depended on the opinions of experts in a profession who would give these uh, 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 strong opinions and explain exactly what uh, one should think about a particular topic. And that probably was, you know, what he had in mind uh, as an educational documentary. Wiseman had uh, um, mentioned in his written proposal to film that he wanted to have, you know, poetic creative elements in the film. But those are, you know, rather vague terms. And so, uh, you know, one one man's poetry is perhaps not another. Um, the, um, the use, as you say, the fact that there was no narration, this sort of uh, oblique structure uh, seemed to him no structure at all. He talked about this hodgepodge, he uses that term to describe the film, with a camera running helter-skelter, uh, et cetera. Uh, he was uh, offended by much of what he saw, but also he was completely baffled, I think, by the form of the film. Uh, Superintendent Gone, who had originally been a real supporter of the film, and, and from the very beginning, he uh, supported Weisman's idea, but it was not his decision to give complete uh, permission to film. But Superintendent Gone was shown the film by Weisman when it was completed, but it didn't have the title or the um, credits. And Wiseman in testimony claimed that Gon had been very favorable toward the film. Gon in testimony claimed that he had thought he saw a completed film. He thought he was just looking at rushes, at footage. Uh, and so again, I think the style of the film had a great deal to do with um, thinking that Wiseman was uh, if not uh, irresponsible, perhaps even inept. I mean, this was the first film he directed. And so the, uh, <laughs> the idea that maybe he didn't know what he was doing, which of course he did know what he was doing, but for someone who hadn't seen that kind of filmmaking, uh, and I would guess that Kalis, uh, Superintendent Gone, Judge Kalis, Superintendent Gone, and Commissioner Gavin, not any of them had seen primary or, or uh, Happy Mother's Day by Leacock or, you know, you know, any of the films that were coming out in the 60s, Salesman by the Maisels Brothers, et cetera, that they weren't in that loop. Uh, and, and so to them, uh, the film uh, was unacceptable in a whole lot of ways. And that kind of openness, he also talks about that in his decision uh, about, you know, the uh, viewer is just left on his own to figure out what it means. Well, later that would be seen as one of the great attributes 
of Wiseman's filmmaking, the kind of openness that the films have and the way um, viewers are engaged in making meaning. Uh, but at that time, to Kalos, that was that was a complete failure that a viewer was left on his or her own trying to figure things out. How do these things relate to each other, et cetera? Yeah, I think I think one of the the funniest things looking back uh, in 2021 is the judge's characterization of the film as a piece of commercialism. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that he assumed that, um, you know, that there would be this voyeuristic uh, rush to it. I, I don't think, again, I think he probably was unfamiliar with stag films of the 60s, too, that he thought that that this was, you know, so shocking uh, in certain kinds of ways. I mean, full frontal nudity was very, un male full frontal, full frontal nudity was, you know, was, was not common at all. It was, you know, prohibited from being shown in commercial films at the time. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of talk to about uh, how he's made so much money <laughs> off of this, or like that it was a ploy for Wiseman himself to make money off of it. Or some of the residents were, uh, or at least one of them was bugged by the thought that he might've been doing it to make money for himself, which uh, like you said, Arlen, is just kind of like a uh, interesting kind of bizarre consideration now with the hindsight of like his entire career and just knowing him more as a filmmaker. Yeah, although he 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 did you know want to be a filmmaker and uh, the film did have a commercial short commercial run three weeks in New York City, and um, Grove Press was the distributor and that's of course another whole part of the fascination of this story. Grove Press was involved in. Uh, supporting a lot of artistic work that was under siege at the time. And so uh, the fact that he was, a, probably no other distributor would have picked it up, but the fact that Grove Press had picked it up to distribute also gave it this kind of aura of sensational titillating ah. uh, content. Uh, Wiseman twice during that 20 year kind of middle period tried to have the case heard by the US Supreme Court. And both times he was just one vote short of, of certiori. And, uh, sorry about the phone. And um, <laughs> maybe, I guess you can cut that out. Uh, he was just one, Okay, only three rings on my phone. Uh, one vote short of being heard by the Supreme Court. And one of those people who probably would have supported hearing it was Justice Douglas. And the reason he recused himself from hearing the Wiseman case was because he had published with Grove Press himself, and he thought it was a conflict of interest. And so again, um, during that period, of course, the litigation was costing, during the 60s, the litigation cost Wiseman a lot more than he got receipts from the film for those right. three weeks. Um, but so, so it seems like we're starting to talk a bit more about Wiseman as an individual and a filmmaker and curious um, with regards to documentary dilemmas and reality fictions and uh, how you might have um, come to interact with Weissman himself 
um, in the book and the preference, I think you mentioned, you know, he, he was maybe a little less than forthcoming to participate while maybe not being, uh, against the work. He wasn't, you know, jumping at the, at the chance to be involved. Can you just sort of elaborate on what your experiences were with him at that time? Sure. Um, during, uh, the period I was working on the book, um, Wiseman, understandably, was very reluctant uh, to talk about the film uh, because it was under ongoing litigation. Um, we had um, some telephone conversations, short telephone conversations over that period. I, they, they were not interviews. They were more uh, conversations about, uh, you know, factual matters. Um, when I um, finished my dissertation uh, in eight. 1984 and defended. I took a copy of it to Wiseman um, when um, Tom Benson and I were close to finishing the first two chapters of reality fictions on uh, Titicut Follies in high school. High school is the second chapter. Uh, we sent those uh, manuscripts to Wiseman. He sent back a, a memorandum of correction on a few factual details. Um, he uh, we requested an extensive interview with him, which he declined. And he also declined our request to um, have stills from the films in the books. Um, one thing that uh, I, I think is, maybe it's just a, a sort of, to me, an amusing anecdote is in 1984, uh, I had a telephone conversation where I was asking him a question. At that time, Wiseman was 55 years old. And I asked him a question, I think it had to do with consent, consent procedures. And he told me that if he were 80 years old and had stopped making films, that um, <laughs> he would be more forthcoming in his answer and more be able to more fully answer my question. Well, uh, in reality fictions, our last chapter, uh, we called Let's Talk When I'm 80. Uh, reality fiction in mid-career. Uh, of course, we had no idea uh, that Wiseman would just keep going and going and going. And, um, you know, to his great credit, uh, still working in his 90s now and his last film, film City Hall, uh, a brilliant film. So uh, anyway, um, since, uh, since the film has been freed, I've seen Wiseman in a variety of places and situations, including a, a 50th anniversary uh, celebration of, of Tiddicott Follies in uh, Amherst. And um, he's been, uh, you know, friendly and forthcoming. I think that he was, uh, I don't maybe forthcoming is not the word, friendly uh, is the word because I wasn't really asking any questions anymore about Tiddicott Follies. He seems to be, um, I had a chance to speak with him ab about City Hall and other stuff somewhat recently and also just reading other reviews. He seems to even like unprovoked um, recall Titicut Follies or bring up Titicut Follies quite often. Like it seems to be like a pretty important part of his corpus to himself still. Well, understandably, I mean, I, I really admire his tenacity. He just would not give up, you know, until the film was freed. He just wouldn't give up. And it went on for, you know, decades and uh, enormously expensive, I'm sure, because he had some of the best attorneys uh, in the country supporting him. Um, but um, 
it, it was, uh, I think, not just because the film wasn't being shown, but I think there was a great deal of personal hurt involved. I mean, he and his wife, too, because, I mean, all sorts of things that you would think would be uh, completely unconnected to the film, like the fact that his wife um, welcomed uh, Benjamin Spock and Martin Luther King into their home when they were in Boston. Uh, on a, uh, a peace mission, uh, that this became relevant because it was uh, uh, in, in, and it was described um, in very antagonistic terms in one of the Boston conservative papers. And you know, personal uh, details about his life, he was threatened. There was uh, a lot of anti-Semitic uh, 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 slurring of him personally. And so I, he besides feeling betrayed by people that he thought had supported him. So um, I, I think it, it's one of those uh, hurts that you know doesn't go away on a personal level, plus the fact that um, he wanted the film to be shown. Um, and as I said, he just wouldn't give up until it was possible. And so I, I'm glad for him uh, that it can be shown and I'm glad for people who get to see it. Yeah, cer certainly. Um, I know Sean and I have both benefited. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, one of our, one of America's few nonagenarian filmmakers, I'm sure Weissman himself uh, probably wouldn't have even predicted the career he's had. But as, you know, arguably the most prolific documentarian of all time, how much do you view Titty Cut Follies um, to be a sort of a semiotic text? You know, when you look at the the whole body of the director's work, you know, uh, I think someone someone in, made the mention in the book that that Weissman sort of arrived fully formed. You know, how how much of what going back to what you were saying earlier, what we refer to now as being Weissman esque. Um, do you think was there and, and apparent in his first film? Uh, well, many things. Uh, and uh, if I could just tick off some of them and uh, some of the, the changes uh, that have been made too, um, that um, he has often referred to his films as a series or one extremely long film. Um, so the idea of confining oneself to a single institution in when he started out in 68, the idea of looking at an institution was uh, original in many ways. And his, his emphasis on the social interactions within a, an institution, uh, how we stretch that then to a place, whether it's, you know, Jackson Heights or Aspen. Uh, and then, uh, you know, to neighborhoods, uh, entire towns, uh, but again, the idea of a self-contained uh, uh, social environment. Um, the uh, there, you know, some exceptions once in a while, like ballet uh, goes from New York to um, the New York uh, Ballet Company. They go to a performance in Copenhagen, I think, in Athens, etc. But but still, his his emphasis has definitely been on that kind of containment. Uh, one of the important changes, though, after Titicut Follies was Wiseman had gone to Bridgewater, Massachusetts Correctional Institution, Bridgewater, 
1959 as a law instructor uh, for Boston University teaching a seminar in legal medicine. Uh, he took students there because he assumed that some of them would become uh, district attorneys in Massachusetts. And he wanted them to see, he'd heard about this place and he wanted them to see where they might be sending people. And so he uh, clearly had uh, strong feelings about that particular place. Uh, since then, he often makes uh, quite a bit of, of, of a point of going, saying he goes into institutions that he is not familiar with, that he wants to learn about a place, but he doesn't go into a place that he already knows well. And so that's a change in a kind of attitude toward um, his relationship to an institution. Another very important change is that he made Titicut Follies, which he describes now as being a very naive idea that it would be an instrument of social reform and that it would be could be used in this kind of way for that sort of purpose and that it would have that sort of effect. After Titicut Follies, excuse me, uh, some of the films were uh, somewhat critical, but he certainly didn't use social reform as a motive that he discussed when he was talking about his films. Um, so, so those those changes are made. As far as the style of filmmaking, the idea of following uh, a group, not following, but but uh, um, showing people in interaction became very important. The whole idea of moving away from any kind of a star system or a kind of leading character, which was the case in many uh, direct cinema films where it would be a rock star or, or Joe Levine or Marlon Brando or, or Bob Dylan or something that the film was made about. Um, with City Hall, and you probably have talked about that, Sean, that he kind of moves away from that with the mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, uh, who comes close to being uh, the star of that film. Mm. Uh, he, uh, uh, as you said before, he eschews narration, he doesn't have identifications, he doesn't use non diegetic music, he doesn't use non diegetic interviews. All of those uh, characteristics were. Uh, present in Titicut Follies. Uh, the long shots uh, that show duration, that show, uh, many have commented on uh, the, the idea of filming uh, when you think it should be over and then something else happens and then you see something else going on. And uh, the great cinematographer Haskell Wexler uh, has commented at length about Marshall's uh, remarkable uh, photography in, in Titicut Follies. And so that kind of use mm. of duration of shot to give us a chance to see how unpredictable uh, human behavior is and how things uh, proceed in ways that we might not be uh, expecting at all. Um, these uh, idea that the films are mm. constructed as a series of sequences. And again, this goes back to what you said about Kalis. He didn't get it. He, he thought that these sequences didn't you know, have anything to do with each other. And that suddenly you'd see the yard uh, and the activities in the yard, and then you would see something else. The idea of, well, who's, you know, nobody's telling us why we're here or where we're going. And that the idea of, of using extended sequences then with transitions that um, often continue to show uh, a sense of place or some kind of a tone. One of the editorial 
uh, uh, techniques that he used in Tidicate Follies that he abandoned immediately is cross-cutting for contrast and comparison. He uses that in two different uh, instances in Titicut Follies. And he later talks about uh, abandoning that technique, regretting that he used it. Uh, he thinks it's too obvious. And uh, one of the things that uh, Wiseman cannot be accused of in later films is being too obvious. Um, so uh, uh, something that's not talked about very much is the variety and the unpredictability of American speech. That uh, the sound, you know, Wiseman is the sound recordist in his films, and um, the speech in the films, the dial, the the, the what people say to each other, uh, you know, it's quite uh, amazing. And often he will cut on a line that's particularly important. And so, if, you know, if there's a cut add a sentence, we hear that sentence and, and stays with us in a different way. And that's a pattern that that he used in Titicut Follies from the very beginning. Uh, you know, where am I going to get treatment? I guess you'll get it here, you know, and then cut. And so we hear that that sentence. Um, so within this, these templates uh, that he established with Titicut Follies, I mean, it's really quite amazing when you think about it as a first time director, yeah, um, that he stayed with them now for these decades and decades, uh, there's still flexibility within that template. And the films have a lot of variation in tone and rhythm, et cetera. Uh, just a couple more things uh, uh, about from the beginning. Um, uh, Wiseman has worked with four different cinematographers over his career. The first two cinematographers just on one film each. And so there's a lot of debate about, well, maybe not a lot, maybe not enough debate about uh, how much the cinematographers are involved in these films and their creation. Uh, Wiseman insists that he gives directions to the cinematographers with hand gestures and, and facial gestures and et cetera. And he tells them exactly what to shoot and how to shoot it. Uh, but it seems to me that there's some variation among the cinematographers. Uh, so the first two, John Marshall shot only Titicut Follies. Uh, they had a terrible falling out, never spoke to each other again the rest of their lives. Marshall's now dead. Um, but Marshall's shooting is very visceral. And he talks uh, about how he really tried to get close to people, both physically and emotionally, while he was filming. Richard Leiterman also did just one film, High School, the second film. He's a Canadian who told us in an interview that he was fascinated with his brand new zoom lens. And I think we can see that fascination with the attention to uh, detail of gesture, facial expressions, et cetera, and high school. Uh, then Wiseman started working with uh, Bill Brain, a, a, another Canadian, uh, worked on 10 films together. Uh, Brain, I think, made some very strong films with Wiseman. Uh, there's a directness and a relentlessness in uh, Brain's uh, cinematography and films, you know, like Hospital, uh, you know, with the kid vomiting <laughs> on the floor and uh, wants to know if maybe they have some music uh, while he's being treated. Uh, then uh, in 1978 with Maneuver, uh, Wiseman started working with John Davey, at that time a young Brit, now a not so young Brit. Um, 
Davy has been working with him now for over 40 years, which is really, you know, quite amazing collaboration. And I think um, his cinematography has a kind of cool, competent quality that is uh, in, in some ways a contrast to these earlier uh, cinematographers. I've heard uh, I've heard Wiseman uh, refer to their relationship while shooting as like sort of like a dance partner, like they they just kind of get at this point just non-verbally. Yeah, well, it's good that he sees it as partner uh, because that's an important word, I think. <laughs> and, and so is dance, uh, but the partner part is important. Uh, many people have, uh, because most of the direct cinema people from the 60s and 70s were cinematographers. A lot of people have assumed that Wiseman is a cinematographer. And he often doesn't correct people when they talk about his camera, because again, he sees it as his camera because he's directing the cinematographer. There was a, a maybe you've seen the illustration uh, by Levine in the New York Review of Books once that had Wiseman flashing, like, you know, opening a raincoat and there was a camera lens. And so again, this assumption that he was the cinematographer or maybe just a Wiseman film. Uh, uh, a couple other things. Um, Titicut Follies, again, his first film, takes the name from a variety show that was performed every year uh, at the institution with staff, inmates, patients. Uh, if the film opens with it and closes with it, and one other time in the film we see from it. So it frames the film. And you see a banner in the background with the words Titicut Follies when we see that opening performance scene. Um, many people, probably mostly who hadn't seen the film, picked up on the word follies and gave Wiseman a great deal of grief about uh, the fact that it was some kind of proof that he was flippant about the project, that he was mocking uh, people, that he was turning it into a show. And again, back to what Arlen said about trying to make money off this show. Uh, Etc. And so, again, I don't know Wiseman's motivations, and in, in, um, but after that, you see a big change in the names of his films, and they go to the most minimal, unambiguous names. And so, you have something like hospital, zoo, or if it's in a place like you, uh, uh, Arlen, have talked about Belfast, Maine, Moravia, Indiana, yeah, uh, yeah. etc. And then. Um, much more rarely uh, a condition like near death, uh, which is a which is an amazing amazing film. Um, one film is an exception to that is the scene. Uh, he filmed that at a Benedictine monastery in Michigan, and people always ask him why that word, you know, and it has a, a kind of biblical uh, connotation. But that instead of calling it monastery, he called it a scene. Uh, then just a couple more things. Um, starting with Titicut Follies and shooting in black and white, that was common in 1966 when he was filming. But he stayed with the black and white for a lot longer than other documentary filmmakers. He finally moved to color uh, with the store. And uh, he talks about that was um, in 1982. And he talks about it as being dictated by the subject matter. This is uh, 
uh, a film made uh, at the flagship Neiman Marcus in Dallas during the Christmas season, and it's full of glitter and opulence, as you might expect in a very upscale store during Christmas season. He also stuck with 16 millimeter, which he is, you know, was using in Titicate Follies much longer than other documentary filmmakers. And again, in interviews, he has said that he uh, finally switched to digital reluctantly because he loved his old way of editing. Um, and in fact, the cover of Titicate Follies, we have a picture of him at his editing uh, station. Um, but he, he couldn't find um, uh, labs that would process 16 millimeter quickly. And so um, hmm. he felt he had to move to digital. I've, I've wondered, and like Arlen, this can be, I guess, part of our ongoing project uh, down the road, but like, I'm interested in, I, I didn't ask him uh, about this, but uh, that switch to digital also facilitates a different aspect ratio for him. Um, and I wonder if that was also something that was less comfortable or something that he had to adjust to. I don't know. Well, perhaps, uh, I don't know if you saw the really fine piece about uh, what if the great American novel is not a novel, mm -hmm. sure. great American novelist is not a novelist, and Earl Morris, who uh, is a, a friend of Wiseman's, Wiseman doesn't really usually hang out with filmmakers, but he seems, they seem to be friends, and he talks about how conservative Wiseman is, and, you know, about how reluctant he is to change. Um, he, um, in a sense, joined a trend in 1960s by filming Titicate Follies in a style that was becoming a trend among independent filmmakers at the time um, that sometimes were seen as kind of avant-garde. Uh, but since then, he's been impervious to change as far as documentary style. It'd be interesting to talk to him about the aspect ratio question. But different styles that have kind of come along, there have been a number, you know, since uh, he started filming. And, and just one that I will mention is the style toward uh, reflexivity in documentary filmmaking and the idea of making the filmmaking process and the apparatus of filmmaking uh, visible to an audience and noticeable that um that Wiseman has has you know not at all of course embraced that and um it's interesting that some have even gone so far as to argue that it's become an ethical imperative uh to be reflexive about one's filmmaking but he has not uh accepted that argument obviously well at at the at the conclusion of your book, you, you talk about how Follies uh, reveals this wide gap uh, then between um, consent, informed consent and, and this practice of, of direct cinema. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a, a bit about what, what that means to you and whether this has changed uh, regard to the style that he is still practicing now, um, even though documentary filmmaking has become more popular, uh, especially in the last 20 years. Yeah, well, I think um, consent is, a, informed consent is an ideal. And I don't think that uh, the ideal probably has changed. And it's also a, a very um, difficult, if not impossible, ideal to reach. That doesn't mean that filmmakers shouldn't be um, conscious of ethical issues and uh, do the best they can 
to uh, treat subjects well and in good faith. Um, with indirect cinema being an unscripted form, it's impossible to predict to a subject how the footage is going to be used in a final film. That is just not a, a practical possibility. It's also impossible for a filmmaker to predict how audiences are going to react to footage. And a number of times in Wiseman's films, uh, he uh, people have reacted about reviews or things that have been said in the press about their behaviors and then have gone back to argue, well, then they haven't been treated fairly by the filmmaker. Uh, and it's impossible to know how, how films are going to be interpreted by audiences. That yeah, doesn't to deal mean with that, that, I mean, with, with Madison Square Garden, with his, with his film there, like, you know, obviously getting consent to make that movie, but again, not getting like consent once they were able to see it and put it together. Yeah, well, and again, Madison Square Garden is, a, I think, as far as I know, and you might know more than I do about this, the only film that was made and hasn't been shown at all. And it partly is over legal issues. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the garden uh, wouldn't go for it. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. to have, and he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't change his position at either. Uh, Wiseman has, from the beginning, uh, been absolutely uh, inflexible about having editing rights. This was one of the, I don't think we, uh, I think I mentioned it and, and let me go back and then I'll come back to consent that um, one of the charges against Wiseman in uh, the original case was that he had breached an oral contract with the state and the state argued that there had been a contract that the state would have editing privileges. And Wiseman denied that. And I think that when you see his career, and I've talked to filmmakers actually of, about some commercial projects that Wiseman was going to be involved in and then uh, was gonna be a documentary within a fiction film, but that he wouldn't have complete control over it and he wasn't interested. <laughs> And so I think he's been completely consistent in his uh, insistence on editorial control. Uh, but going back to consent, um, I think that now that um, th these problems have magnified when um, material gets online and therefore, you know, the whole, uh, you know, reproductive possibilities are you know, really outside of filmmakers' mm -hmm. hands as far as what people might do, how they might um, uh, treat material, how they might uh, you know, take something from a film and repurpose it, uh, is, is again, something that filmmakers have uh, less control over. So I think that we're in a situation where filmmakers in a sense are more aware of these ethical problems, but in a sense, they have less control because of new technical possibilities. And so it's, it, again, it, it presents uh, an increasing dilemma around you know, these issues. Um, another thing that I think is important to talk about with consent is how people often talk about it as an individual decision. And um, 
in Wiseman's films particularly, but in many, many films, uh, consent is a social situation and it has vertical and horizontal dimensions. And so when the head of an organization, when the superintendent of corrections gives permission, the word goes down, cooperate with the filmmaker. And it also has a kind of horizontal thing, I think, in social situations where what, you won't let him film your classroom? What, what's, what's going on in your classroom that you don't want anybody to see? You know, and so I, I think that it, it has, a, you know, there are pressures toward consent that move in different ways. Also, I think that the, um, the, the new attention to consent is partly ethical uh, about, you know, doing right by people. It's partly legal about privacy rights being, uh, litigated more now and it's partly ideological in the sense of an assumption that there are differences in power between a filmmaker and subjects and that sometimes is the case but not always i think power is very complex and it fluctuates and moves around and the idea that subjects are powerless I think is a mistake to make and that documentarians are all powerful and that subjects are somehow at their mercy. Um, I think that the Titicate Folly situation, of course, you have this extreme example of men who were incarcerated in a prison. And so their rights uh, are diminished, but that, that they still are operating within a power situation. And for, for instance, Vladimir and Titicate Follies wanted to make a deal with Wiseman about using his image if he would get him out of Bridgewater. And so um, those kinds of negotiations, I think, are very important. Also, there's been a move in, uh, maybe this is more connected with collaboration and we can wait on that. Uh, something else I wanted to say about collaboration and, and ethics. Yeah, well, I think, well, a few things I think um, you mentioned Errol Morris, you know, I think it's interesting thinking about the power dynamics in his films with uh, Rumsfeld and Robert McNamara. You know, I think there's yeah. definitely um, like you're describing a, a shifting of, you know, who has the power at, at different moments during those films. Um, but I'm sure ethics especially is are something that um Sean and I are going to be wrestling with throughout the series on on Weissman's films. I'm curious. And also your your thank you very much. Thank you very much at the end of your interview. You know, Weissman's thanking you for giving him a chance to talk about his film. And you're thanking him for a chance to interview him about his film and have it published. You know, and it, it, it's interesting, you know, that kind of negotiation of um, reciprocity. Certainly. And I think... Um, you know, like you're saying, now there's much more consciousness and conversation around ethnic ethics and consent and power dynamics. Um, privacy, especially, I don't know if you might have seen the doc that came out last year, Welcome to Chechnya, um, where they were. No, I, I heard about it. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I heard about it. But yeah. I didn't see. Well, I mean, it's just interesting, especially thinking about the 89 decision um, where they're deep faking people's faces in real time so that they look like actual humans, but they're not what they actually look like in reality. Um, so, so technology has certainly evolved to, to maybe make some of these things possible. But were a filmmaker today, um, 
to go about consent and participation, you know, I think another thing that's happening more in docs is is more editorial control sharing with uh, participants and subjects, either either uh, in the shooting phase with self-documentation or even having some input in the editing room. Um, you know, would someone who went around collaboration, went about collaboration and consent in the manner that Weissman did in 67 with Titty Cut Follies, would, would you characterize them today as being irresponsible? Um, I don't think I want to go there. Um, <laughs> uh, the, um, but I do think that there has been a, a real emphasis on collaboration uh, in uh, uh, recent years. And um, some of that came from um, anthropology, which was really under siege. Uh, as far as ethical dilemmas. And uh, David McDougall, the anthropologist, came up with the term participatory cinema and to see uh, it driven by the uh, economic and political needs of the subjects. And so he presented this as a new paradigm for ethnographic filmmaking, which uh, of course is very different than um, others. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about John Marshall's career is that he has moved through these different trans right. stages. In the last part of his life, he was very deeply involved in collaboration uh, uh, as far as cinema. Uh, but again, uh, some have also joked about, you know, having 100 people around you as you edit, uh, you know, what that, uh, what kind of a nightmare and what kind of a practical uh, situation uh, that that could lead to. Um, I think that it's important to think too about how this um, uh, call for collaboration has also moved into the idea of filming one's own community and speaking for oneself. And so yes, I really true. applaud the move of more funding for uh, communities and populations and individuals who've gone unheard, uh, who've been unnoticed, all of that. I think that that's very important. But I also think that there's a danger of pushing documentary into a place. And, and you see some real changes in funding, I guess, in the last uh, few years. Um, uh, one of my daughters is a filmmaker. And uh, we talk a lot about funding. Um, and um, the uh, idea that the only kind of ethical filmmaking is autobiographical or autoethnographic. -ethno I think this is a mistake. It also assumes that there's no consent problems within one's own community. Uh, I would argue that, and I guess I am arguing, <laughs> that <laughs> consent just it doesn't disappear, the dilemmas, they just mutate. And so the, all the questions of cooperation or coercion just take a different form when you're filming your family who, and your family members want you to succeed or they want to block you because they never liked you in the first place or the community doesn't think you're representing them correctly, et cetera. I mean, I, I think these... Uh, procedures, you have to build trust, you have to work with integrity and good faith. But I think, again, uh, 
the idea of, of collaboration with your own community and bringing people in, you can't bring the whole world in, you know? And so who do you bring in? We still have all these, you know, layers of who, who's in charge, who has power, who's, uh, et cetera. And so I, I think that uh, it, it's really impossible to create some kind of ethical checklist and did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? That's going to work for all situations and all filmmakers. Yeah, I think I think that's very true, and I think that's some one of the reasons that I find the ethics of documentaries so compelling is that you know it really is case by case, filmmaker by filmmaker, subject by subject, and you know each one has to be navigated uh, based on the terms of its own circumstances. Mm-hmm. Are you a filmmaker? Um, I, am. I am. Yeah, yeah I, I, I uh, recently had a had short, short on the circuit, circuit. Uh, owing, owing to Weissman. I, I just called it backyard. backyard. It was, it was about, about uh, my, my backyard. backyard. Um, Good for you. Good for you. I always wanted to make a film called Corridor. <laughs> and just take all the the corridors from all hit Weissman's films. Yeah, no. Okay, backyard. Well, I'll look for that. Oh yeah, I I could send you a link. Um, oh, do do. Yeah, I, yeah. I'd like that. Sure, sure. Thank uh, you, thank you for for uh, answering all these questions and and very graciously and and just giving us your time. Yeah, it was such well, a joy. Really appreciate you you joining us here. Well, thank you. Uh, I have all these notes of things I wanted to say that I didn't get around to, but uh, I clearly talked for a long time because it's six twenty eight. <laughs> So th thank you for your interest. And uh, so you're going to do all Wiseman's films, huh? That's the plan. That's yeah. the plan. Okay, so you guys are going to go into your 90s, huh? Hi, Lily, hi, Lily, hi,